this morning, if you would turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. We are coming to the final stretch of our series through Zechariah with two sermons this week and next week in this beautiful chapter, Zechariah chapter 14. Every good story has a good and great ending. It's not a good story if it doesn't finish well. But it's easy when you're reading the story, and especially when you're in the story and a part of the story, to get discouraged and lose sight of the big picture. To forget the plot of the story as you experience twists and turns, you can begin to forget that there's going to be an end and that that ending will be good. When times get hard, when each day seems to drag on, as you're waiting for things to change, as trials and afflictions come, we can forget that we are living in a grand story that is written by a magnificent and good author. That every twist and turn in this story is according to his plan and design. And he will bring his story, the story of this world, to an epic and magnificent end. We can often feel discouraged and forget that he is writing this story and that there will be an amazing ending. The burning question we often face is, how will the story end? When will the story end? See, in every good story, you often will see a crisis with unresolved questions. And as you're going through the story, you're waiting with anticipation for resolution. How, how is this crisis going to be resolved? How, how are things going to turn out? And it was no different for the people in Zechariah's time. They were in a time and season of crisis. They were losing sight of the big picture. They were losing sight of the story and especially of the author of the story. And God spoke to them. We've seen all through the book of Zechariah, God was speaking to them through his promises to remind them, to, to fuel their hope that he is in charge. He is the author of the story. He will enter the story and return to them and he will bring all things to a good end. We saw in the beginning of Zechariah, he says, return to me and I will return to you. But the question that these people were facing was, when will he return? How will he return? And as things got hard, they began to ask, will he even come? And what will happen when he comes? Well, today, we're going to find out. Today, as we enter the final chapter of this beautiful book of Zechariah, once again, the Lord is going to peel back the curtains of our ordinary everyday lives to give us a glimpse of the big story that he's writing, the story that we're all a part of. He's going to show us the realities of what he's done, of what he is doing, and of what he will do when he comes again. 
And the Lord does that so that our hearts might find confidence and hope in Him, our Savior and our King. And that we might grow in our anticipation that we would both, that we would tremble with both fear and joy at the promise of His coming. Now before we get into the passage, you know, some of you do your homework faithfully every week. It's not homework that I assign, but, but you, you've been doing this. You, you try and read the passage uh, each week before we come to Friday, and that's a very good habit. I commend that habit. Every week, if you know what the sermon text is, read it ahead of time. Read it in your quiet times, even daily if you can. And, and some of you have done that. And as you've been reading this or, uh, you know, discussing it even in maybe your life group, if you read it beforehand, you have just wondered, what in the world is this all about? And you're confused and perplexed as you looked at Zechariah 14. Well, if, if that's you, I want to say you're in good company. Because Zechariah 14 is not just the hardest text in the book of Zechariah. It's one of the hardest texts in the Old Testament. It's not just one of the hardest texts in the Old Testament. It's one of the hardest texts in the entire Bible. Uh, the great Protestant reformer and Bible interpreter, no less than Martin Luther, he wrote a commentary on the book of Zechariah. And he starts his commentary on chapter 14 with these words, and I quote, Here in this chapter I give up, for I have no idea what the prophet is talking about. There's a Canadian scholar named Al Wolters. He is an evangelical uh, Bible interpreter. He's uh, one of the foremost authorities on the book of Zechariah in the world today. Uh, and in his commentary... 500-page commentary on the book of Zechariah in chapter 14. He surveys seven different views that people hold on Zechariah 14, three major views that have been held throughout church history. And at the end of all of that, he says, uh, given the great linguistic difficulties, interpretive difficulties, and theological difficulties with this chapter, and given the fact that nobody agrees, there is no consensus at all on what it means, even among people from the same denomination and, and same religious tradition, I'm tempted to join Luther and say, I give up, I have no clue what the prophet is talking about. Well, should we give up? I'm going to submit that the answer is no. Because you see, brothers and sisters, we believe in the clarity of Holy Scripture. We believe that God has made his scripture clear to us. Not all portions are equally clear. Not all portions are equally easy to understand. And we recognize that sometimes when we do not understand, it's not the fault, fault of the author. It's not because God has not spoken clearly. It's because of us. <laughs> it's because we are finite. Uh, we have finite minds. We have weaknesses as we come to the text. We are limited in our understanding. We also recognize that we have sinful biases that might lead us to adopt one interpretation or the other to justify what we already believe. And, and so we recognize those things. And so when we come to a passage that is harder than other passages, uh, the appropriate way to approach this is with some humility and modesty. Some modesty about our own limitations. Uh, adopt a tentative position. Recognize there are others who disagree with us. And, and humbly come to the text asking God's grace and asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand this, apply it to our lives for our edification and growth. Right? So that's the first 
uh, thing to bear in mind when we come to Zechariah 14. Of course, the Apostle Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, all of Scripture is profitable and is useful. Is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the people of God, might be complete, for equipped for every good work. That includes passages like Zechariah 14. All of Scripture is profitable. The Lord Jesus Christ said, all of Scripture points to Him. The law and the prophets and the writings, He said, all of these speak about Me and His death and resurrection. And that includes Zechariah 14, speaks about Jesus. So we can come hopefully to this text and ask the Lord to show us Christ. Now, a couple of interpretive uh, tips and, and some guideposts that I want to give you as we go through this chapter just before we look into the text. First is, like I've said, the, the genre of the text. What kind of literature is this? How is the prophet seeking to communicate? And I've talked about this before as we've gone through the series in Zechariah, is that the author, uh, Zechariah, is using a manner of speaking called prophetic apocalyptic. An ap apocalyptic language uses uh, symbols. It's highly symbolic. It's very colorful. And it is a uh, way of describing reality that is symbolic and, and uses you know, high-flown language. In fact, we do this all the time, even when we talk normally. All right? I want to give you an example. Imagine you're driving home after this, uh, on Khalij al-Arabi road and you witness something happen, something major happen. And different people are describing this scene. One person says, I saw a blur of color and a sudden noise. Heard a sudden noise. Another person says, I saw a noisy vehicle driving fast down the road. A third witness says, I saw an ambulance driving to the hospital. The fourth witness says, I just witnessed a tragedy. And the fifth person says, this is the end of the world for me. Now which of those is true? They're all true. They're just different ways of describing the same reality and there are deeper layers as you go. And this is the end of the world for me. This is a symbolic way of describing what has just happened. And, and we also use this, you know, kind of with our idioms. In English, you might have some in your own uh, native language. We could say the entry of COVID-19 was a life-changing, earth-shattering event. An earth-shattering event. Speak like that all the time. The fall of the Berlin Wall was an earth-shattering event. That is an apocalyptic way of speaking. It's not necessarily to be taken literally. It is symbolic, a symbolic way of speaking about reality. All right. Uh, the second aspect I want to bring to you as we enter Zechariah 14 is you open the text and you see, oh, there's a battle going on. And you say, well, I've seen that in Zechariah before. We've seen it in Zechariah 9. There was a great battle where God came and rescued his people. We saw it again in Zechariah 12, chapter 12. And now we're seeing it again in Zechariah 14. So are there multiple battles that are coming once one time after another in history? And you might be tempted to understand it that way. Well, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to understand it. Because as I've said before, the prophets tend to communicate like this with repetition. Dolby surround sound. 
you hear the sound once, you hear, hear this again, it's the same thing from different perspectives. Uh, there's surround sound and, and you, know, you hear it multiple times in different ways. Think of it like this, like watching a sports game, your favorite uh, sports event. Uh, for me, it is cricket. And sadly, India uh, lost the World Test Championship, uh, but that's okay. Uh, and you, you know, you're watching sports and right after a six has been hit or a goal has been scored or any of those things, touchdown, all of a sudden, what do you see? Instant replay. And, and the same event, the goal, is seen again and again from different angles, with different commentary, with different perspectives. And you might be watching this and you didn't know how it works and you might think, oh, there were seven goals scored in two minutes. No, it's not. It's repeating the same thing, showing it to you from different perspectives. That's how this works. So when we look at this passage, you'll see it begins with the day coming from the Lord. You'll see again and again the phrase used, in that day, in that day. And all of this is speaking about the same realities that we've seen in chapter 9, chapter 12, throughout the book of Zechariah. Alright? It's repeating the battles that we saw there. And now we're seeing it all one final time in an epic, cinematic battle ending. Alright? So with that in mind, let's look at our passage and see the epic unfolding of God's story. How he comes to save his people, judge all nations, and reign as king forever. And we're going to go through this epic battle in this chapter in four scenes. All right? Scene one, the nations gathered to attack. The nations gathered to attack. Verses one and two. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So it begins by saying a day is coming for the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament and especially the prophets. We see again and again that the prophets looked forward to what they call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very significant theme in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible. It refers to the day that they looked forward to, that God would come. He would arrive, He would enter His creation, and He would save His people, He would judge His enemies, and He would establish His kingdom forever. That's the day of the Lord that the prophets were expecting. And Zechariah here is speaking of that day. And we see that there's a surprising beginning to that day. Because here, the nations are gathered to attack God's people. You thought, oh, God is going to come and save his people. But first, there is an attack. And God's people are suffering. They are under attack. What's even more surprising is that these nations, though they gather because of their own evil motives, they don't gather on their own accord. They are coming with evil intent, yet at the same time, this is part of the mysterious, sovereign plan of God. God has gathered these nations to attack His people. Verse 2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, the Lord says. And what's the result for his people? They are utterly devastated. They face great loss and destruction. 
The city is taken, the houses are plundered, the women raped. These are ways of speaking of the horrors of war, the horrors of suffering that people face when their city is overrun by enemies. And, and Zechariah's readers, hearers, those who are hearing this, this would have been just absolutely devastating for them. Because they're saying, oh, this is the, the horror of exile all over again. They had faced attack for their sin. They had faced judgment from God when the Assyrians came and plundered them. And then the Babylonians came and utterly destroyed and hammered them, smashed them. They were carried off into exile. And that, that's what they're seeing here again. Half of the city shall go out in the exile. But the others shall be inside the city and they're besieged. And they're obviously facing great fear. Oh, here we go again. This is going to happen again. We're going to face exile and suffering. And this is the Lord's doing. The Lord has brought this affliction upon His people. And you wonder why? Well, friends, the Lord is a righteous judge. And judgment begins in His own household, even among His own people. As one teacher says, judgment begins with the household of God. The king of the whole earth has a controversy, not only with the world that has broken faith with him and grants him no room for earthly affairs, but also in the first place with his church. Therefore, salvation comes about via judgment. Friends, it's always this way in the Bible. God uses these trials. God uses the, the fire of affliction and suffering to purify us, to prepare us for his coming kingdom. Jesus speaks about this. He says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. The apostles speak about this in the book of Acts. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Sufferings, persecution, affliction, all of this is used by God in his mysterious plan to prepare us for his coming and to prepare us for his kingdom. And how does suffering work in us? How does suffering work in the people of God? It makes them cry out. It makes us cry out to the only one who can help us. When things get really desperate, you realize that you cannot rely on yourself. You cannot rely on these other things that you're relying upon. The only one that you can rely upon is the Lord and He is the only one who can help. So the people of God are surrounded on all sides. They are under attack. All hope seems lost. And it is a desperate scenario. They cry out to God. And then there's a change. You know, every good story that ends with an epic battle, it usually follows the same flow. Right? You can pick any number of examples. Think of a good story, a good book or movie that ends with a major battle. What's happening? The good guys are under attack. They are underdogs. The odds are all against them. They're about to lose and then suddenly there's an intervention. Suddenly someone else enters the scene. I think about the Chronicles of Narnia that you know, we love reading with our children. I, I finally allowed my kids to watch uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A few weeks ago, we watched it together. And at the end, there's this epic battle where the good guys, the Narnian forces, are under attack from the White Witch and her armies. And the White Witch and her armies are about to destroy them. They're, they're, they're struggling on every side. But suddenly, Aslan, 
who in C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was the author, he was a Christian, Aslan the lion, who is the king, represents Jesus. Aslan enters the battle and it's over in seconds. Maybe you like J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. If you read The Return of the King, if you read The Two Towers, if you watch the movies, you'll see again the good guys are under attack. They're about to lose. Everything seems lost. And all of a sudden, there's an intervention. And things change. Or maybe for some of you, teenagers, and maybe I'm outdated a little bit here, but some of the teenagers, some of you like The Avengers. And you can take your pick. Avengers Infinity War or Avengers Endgame. And the Avengers are losing, everything's going wrong, and then boom, someone else appears. Boom, there's a change of uh, circumstances. And from the jaws of defeat, there's victory. Because someone greater entered the fight. And here the people of God are desperate, they're losing. But someone greater enters the fight. And that's what we see in scene two. Scene one, the nations gathered to attack. Scene two, the Lord, our Savior. Verses three to, fight. three to five. God enters the fight. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. As we cry out, as we are desperate, and all hope seems lost, as the people of God are under attack, they cry out, and God comes and delivers God acts to save. The Lord comes to save and to judge. The Lord enters the fight. All through the book of Zechariah, we've been waiting for this. The book begins by saying, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. And you're waiting. When is he going to return? How is he going to return? For years and years, these people, the people of Israel who had faced great suffering, they've been wondering, when will he come back? When will he return? We still wait for his return today. And you've been waiting as you've been reading Zechariah. When is he going to return? And now he leaves heaven to enter the fight. And when he comes, it is an earth-shattering event. Notice verse 3. The Lord goes out. It says, then the Lord will go out. He goes out from heaven. He leaves his heavenly abode and enters his creation. And he fights against the nations, attacking his people. He enters the battle. We've seen this again and again throughout the Bible, throughout Israel's history. The Lord fighting for his people. You've seen it in the Exodus, how he destroyed Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt with plague after plague and swallowed them in the Red Sea. You've seen it as Israel entered the promised land and as enemies came against them. Again and again they had victory because they knew the Lord was fighting for them. The enemies know the Lord fights for them. The Lord is a mighty warrior and when he comes it is earth shattering. As one author says, the Lord descends from heaven to stand upon the earth as its rightful ruler and judge. And friends, make no mistake, this is a terrifying moment. 
But for the people of God, it is a moment of relief. The Lord, their God, has come to save them. And he stands on this Mount of Olives that is to the east of Jerusalem. And so he's going to enter Jerusalem from the east. Where else in the Bible do you see an entry happen from the east? It's in the temple. The people enter the temple, the priests enter the temple from the east. And this is calling us back to something very significant in Israel's history. If, you've know, if you know the prophets and have read the prophets closely, these people would remember Ezekiel's prophecy. Because Ezekiel shows us in Ezekiel chapter 11 that when God had had enough of his people's sin and he was going to judge them, his glory, his presence departed from them. His glory left the temple and, and, and went out of Jerusalem. And where did he come to rest? Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God abandoned his people to judgment for their sin. He departed from them and went away to the east on this very mountain. And now he's back. The Lord is back. And he is on this mountain to the east and he's going to enter his city once again. He's going to enter his city and now his entire city, the implication is, is the temple. Is his holy place. What else happened? The mountain breaks apart, the text tells us, and it begins moving and a valley is created. He creates a way of escape for those people who were besieged. The Lord creates a way of escape through the valley so that they can flee. And then in verse 5, there's this sudden dramatic turn. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The holy ones there refer to both his angelic army, but also his people, his saints. And so the people who escaped from the attack now come back as part of a victorious, conquering, heavenly army. This is God's grand re-entry. God has shown up. He is on the move with all his holy ones. The fleeing people who were besieged and defenseless now enter as a conquering, victorious, mighty army. Friends, do you know that the Lord our God burns with passion for his people? Even through all the suffering that we face, he will ultimately bring deliverance. He will not abandon us, brothers and sisters. Through judgment will come salvation. And we see this scene throughout history again and again. God acts to defend, to protect, to deliver his people just in the nick of time. And he will do so again, Zechariah 14 promises, one final time in a climactic way. But you're about to see the results of the battle and suddenly the scene shifts away. Away from the battle to show us something grander and greater and more beautiful from the Lord's return. It shows us the amazing results of God's return on all His creation. And so that takes us to scene three. Scene one, the nations gathered for attack. Scene two, the Lord our Savior. Now we're in scene three, the Lord our King. Verses six to 11. And as we look through these verses, you'll see that we are going to do our sandwich structure again for this section. 
right? You remember the sandwich, the burger, Zachariah's sandwich. You have a top slice of bread, a bottom slice of bread, and the meat in the middle. That's, that's what this section is like, all right? So we'll see the top slice of bread, that's the effects on creation. The bottom slice of bread is the effects on the city. And then right in the middle, you get this theological gem. Let's read verses 6 to 11. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its side from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So we take our top slice of bread there and we see the Lord's effects on creation. When the Lord comes, there's going to be a complete renewal of creation. Verse 6 says, there shall be no light. Verse 7, there's going to, it's a unique day, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Now, what does that make you think of? There's no day, there's no night. When were day and night established? In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, he separates the light from the darkness and he calls the, uh, the light day and the darkness night. And, and here we're seeing something has changed. There's no more day nor night. There's no light, verse 6, and then there is light, verse 7. Because the Lord's presence itself is light. What we're seeing here is that the old creation has given way to the new. Creation is transformed. There is a complete renewal. And now we have non-day and non-night, light all throughout. Of course, we, we, we know where this leads us, right? The Apostle John picks this up in the book of Revelation towards the end as he shows us the new creation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. One author says, The light of the new creation will be the never-failing, unchanging glory of God. Not, not only do we see this newness of light, we also see living waters, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of it goes east, and half of it goes west. So it covers all the land, all of the earth, this life-giving waters. And these life-giving waters are flowing all year round. In summer and in winter, no change. There's water bringing life. And where else do you remember a river going out that was life-giving? Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, back in the original creation. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And of course, the Apostle John picks this up as well as he shows us the new creation at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Friends, when the Lord comes, 
when he arrives, when he enters, there is a new creation. That's the first slice of bread. The bottom slice of bread gives us the effects on the city. Verses 10 and 11. The land is transformed. There's a, there's a change of the entire landscape such that Jerusalem, which I would say and submits here represents the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is lifted up so that the people of God in the city of God are safe and protected by God himself as the Lord surrounds the city with his glory and keeps his people safe. So that's the bottom slice of bread. And now we come to the meat, to the center of this glorious scene here. Verse 9 is the theological center, most scholars recognize, the theological center of the entire chapter. The Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. So we've seen the effects of his coming on the creation. We've seen the effects of his coming on the city. But now Zechariah lifts up our eyes from the creation to behold our God, the creator and king. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Many other rulers, many other kings, many other princes and leaders have been named, but now they are gone and forgotten. The Lord alone is king. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Many other gods have been named. Many other false gods have been worshipped. But now the gods of the nations are disappeared, gone and forgotten. The Lord alone is recognized as God. The one and only true God will be acknowledged for who he is. And this was Israel's belief and their creed and is our belief and creed. As we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that truth now is recognized before all the earth. The one and only true God and King gets the worship and honor he deserves. But what about those who do not acknowledge the true God? What about those nations who came against God's people and re rebelled against the rule of the true king? What happens to them? What is the result of the battle for them? That's what we see in scene four. Scene one, the nations were gathered for attack. Scenes two and three, the Lord our Savior, the Lord our King. Scene four, the nations destroyed in judgment, verses 12 to 15. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another and Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered gold and silver and garments in great abundance so also like this plague will be the plague on the horse the mule the camel the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps 
Now, uh, one of the reasons I caution people against literal interpretation is sometimes uh, overly literal interpretation, especially of passages like this, begin to lead us on some flights of fancy and come up with some strange things. So, you know, as I was doing my research on this chapter, I, I was Googling and I came across a book on Zechariah 14, verse 12. The book is titled, Zechariah 14, verse 12, uh, The Lord's Day. And it's a zombie apocalypse, that's what they call it. So I read to you the description. In the small town of Fair Lakes, Minnesota. Somehow it's always in America, I just don't know why, but you know. It's always, the fulfillment seems to always take place in the United States, but it says in, in this small town, one man awakens to a nightmare of pandemic proportions. A virus, the RACV, reanimated corpse virus, has spread across the globe and turned his friends and neighbors into ravenous eating machines. He must reunite his family and make a break for the faltering safe zone to help make one last stand for humanity. Uh, now that is pretty humorous, but sometimes you know you, you can come up with some strange things when you come to passages like this and you see the, the army, the eyes are rotting, the flesh is rotting. So, so be a little careful what you do with these passages. Be modest in your interpretation. Uh, work hard to understand. But what this is showing us is simply what happens to those who oppose the Lord and his saints. And again, I think the plagues here are symbolic. They are showing us the devastating effects that will come upon those who oppose the Lord. Right? We see there's a plague on the people. Their flesh rots. There's panic and confusion. We see this often in battles where enemy armies came against the Lord. He brings panic upon them. They begin to slay one another. There's a plague. There's panic. There's plunder. As now the Lord's victorious army plunders the enemy. And then finally, there's a plague on animals. And without animals, you're done. You have no food source and you have no transport in the ancient world. So that's what this is describing. It's symbolic. And you might think, oh, symbolic, that means it's not that bad. Well, usually when you have a symbol, the reality is far worse. And we've seen God judge his enemies like this in the past. He brought plagues against Egypt. When the Assyrians came to assemble against uh, the people of God, God slew 185,000 of the enemy's camp in a single night. He brings plagues and destruction upon those who oppose his people. And the point here is, God's victory is certain. His victory is total and complete. He has defeated his enemies, saved his people, and he will reign forever as king. So we see this great and terrifying day in Zechariah 14. And just like Zechariah's original hearers, we are faced with the question, when and how will it all take place? All of this apocalyptic language and symbolism that is used to describe this day of great terror, this day of great salvation, this day of great judgment, when will we see God's entry into his creation to bring his story to its climax? When will we see the old creation transformed into the new? When and how would it all take place? That's what these people were looking forward to. And they saw many interventions of God on their behalf in history. Again and again, they experienced attack 
and they saw the Lord bring victory, but it was temporary. It wasn't the fulfillment of all that they had hoped for because there was something more. And as we come to the New Testament, brothers and sisters, we see a surprising and stunning fulfillment. Because as we read the New Testament, we see that the promises of that day, the promises of that day that Zechariah and the people of Israel in the past were looking forward to, that day when God would enter into his creation to bring salvation and judgment and establish his new creation, the true fulfillment of all the promises of that day from Zechariah 14, that day has already come. And yet, it has not yet come. We are waiting for complete fulfillment. Because in the New Testament we see, this day, that day was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. He inaugurates the fulfillment of these promises. And it will be fulfilled, consummated, completed in his second coming when he brings it to a climax. And as we read this passage and, and we look through the lenses of Christ, we can see how he has fulfilled it. Verse 3, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. Jesus went out. The Son of God left his heavenly throne and came to fight for his people who had no hope of escape. Jesus inaugurates and brings with him the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. The nations were gathered against Jesus. Not just the nations, but the powers of darkness surrounded him. All of the armies of Satan, all of hateful humanity gathered against him. And the horrors of the attack against Jerusalem that we saw in verses 1 and 2, Jesus took those upon himself as he was attacked. Jesus inaugurates the new creation that we see in verses 6 to 11. We saw that there's this unique day when there's no light, but then there is light. And Jesus is the light of the world. He is true light. And his glory will be the light of God's heavenly city. He is the lamp of God's new creation. We see living waters flow out in verse 8. Jesus is the source of living waters. John chapter 4 verse 10, speaking to the Samaritan woman, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John seven thirty eight. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus brings living water and gives life. Jesus has inaugurated the new Jerusalem by his death and resurrection. He brings protection and safety to his people. Jesus is the valley that has been created for us to flee and escape from judgment and destruction. And when Jesus died on the cross, the unique day of Zechariah 14 was fulfilled. Because as he died, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, there was a sudden darkness over all the land. The earth-shattering day of Zechariah 14 took place because the gospel writer Matthew tells us not only was there darkness all over the land, but as he died, the earth shook 
and the rocks were split open. And the holy ones who had believed in God's promises were raised from the dead. And after Jesus' resurrection, they entered the holy city. Jesus and the holy ones entered Jerusalem after his resurrection. Friends, Jesus entered the fight and he conquered the powers of darkness through his death and he rose in victory to rule and reign over God's creation as king. He brings with him the new creation. We see verse 9 of Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Jesus is king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There is only one true God, one true king over all creation, one king who is worthy of all our worship and worthy of all our honor, and his name is one, and his name is Jesus. The Lord is king over all the earth. He is one and his name is one. His name is Jesus. And for us, for you and me, this is good news because we have not been consumed. Because you see, we should be the ones who receive the plagues. We should be those who face devastation and destruction and the curse of God. Because we were God's enemies from the nations. We were those deserving God's judgment for our sin for our rebellion against our king, for our arrogance and our wickedness, we deserve our flesh to rot. These curses should have fallen upon us, but they have not. And they will not for those who repent from sin and flee to our Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Because when Jesus died, not only did he defeat the powers of darkness, but he also plundered their kingdom. We'll see next week in Zechariah 14 that there are people from the nations who are now brought into the people of God to worship God as king. Because Jesus on the cross took upon himself the judgment and the curse that we deserve. He bore the full wrath of God for our sin, for our rebellion. And those of us who belong to the kingdom of darkness, he freed us from that kingdom and has brought us into his eternal kingdom of light. And I want you to know, he will come again in salvation and in judgment. That day has begun and it will be finally fulfilled when he returns. And if you do not belong to Jesus if he is not your king, then you will face the wrath and fury of the Lord, the mighty warrior, the king of creation. The plagues described in this book will come upon you if you do not repent of your sin now and flee to Jesus and put your faith in him and acknowledge him as the only true and rightful God and king. And you look at these plagues, I told you they're symbolic. But like I said, symbols point to a deeper, greater reality. You will face eternal punishment for your sin if you do not trust 
in Christ and acknowledge him as king. And on that day you will wish that your flesh would rot. And that your tongue and eyes and hand would rot. So I want to urge you. I want to plead with you. I want to call you to please turn from your sin. And come trust in King Jesus today. Receive life from the source of living waters to forever enjoy his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ, then that day will be a day of great and unimaginable joy. When that day comes, when our King returns, everything that we've ever hoped for, everything that we've believed, everything that we've sung about, let your kingdom come, everything that we've prayed for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, everything that we've longed for, everything that we've wept for, every desire for God's glory and goodness and kingdom and, and his safety in his presence, it will all be fulfilled because we will be his forever. Jesus says in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word, words of the prophecy of this book. You know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, I told you, in C.S. Lewis's world, Aslan the lion represents Jesus. And Aslan is shown one time having a conversation with this girl named Lucy. And he says to her, Do not look sad. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? And Aslan says, I call all times soon. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. Amen.